The U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement, what some policy watchers have referred to as NAFTA 2.0, went into effect July 1st. Economists and ag policy groups generally hailed NAFTA and its successor agreement, USMCA, as huge wins for farmers and food producers, with Canada and Mexico serving as the largest export markets for U.S. farm products. Welcome to Feedstuffs In Focus, our podcast taking a deeper look at big issues in the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries. I'm your host, Andy Vance. Thanks for joining us. This episode is sponsored by Balchem Animal Health and Nutrition. Join Balchem for their Real Science Lecture Series, a weekly webinar series featuring ruminant nutrition experts discussing vital topics for today's dairy industry. You can learn more at balchemanh.com slash realscience. Former United States Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack serves as the President and CEO of the U.S. Dairy Export Council. In a wide-ranging interview, Feedstuff's Farm Policy Editor Jackie Fatka recently spoke with Vilsack about the newly implemented USMCA, as well as discussing the improving U.S. dairy export picture globally and the dairy industry's ambitious goals on sustainability and carbon emissions. USMCA, as I mentioned, went into effect earlier this month, but already former Secretary Vilsack warns that the actual implementation of the deal could fall short of the dairy industry's expectations due to the way Canada interprets the agreement's tariff rate quota system for dairy. He also discussed the challenges in growing exports to Mexico given that country's struggling economy. With more on the story and the trade deal, here's Feedstuff's policy editor, Jackie Fatka. First off, let's just start with the uh, USMCA agreement on July 1st. We finally saw the implementation of the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. Can you just maybe discuss some of the wins that we see not only for the dairy industry, but all of agriculture under this reinvented NAFTA? You know, I think it's a bit early to talk about this because we are just now with the July 1 implementation date. We're now just beginning to see the actual implementation of this agreement in terms of the the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of the agreement. For example, we had hoped that Canada would be providing additional access to U.S. dairy products under a a reformed and redesigned trade quota, TRQ, trade rate quota. But it turns out that the Canadians have a different view as to how that quota is to be implemented in such a way that it will probably, if it stays, will probably restrict our ability to actually fully benefit from USMCA in terms of the TRQ. Uh, Let me explain this in, in more detail. The expectation was that there would be more opportunity for us to sell products directly to retailers and to food service operations in Canada that would provide a wider range of customers for us to negotiate with and to deal with. But in fact, the way the Canadians want us to implement this TRQ is through the normal channel, which restricts the number of buyers uh, of U.S. products. And those buyers are often not in in the same position that a restaurant or a restaurant chain would be in terms of the product mix that they want. So it will likely result in having a TRQ, but not having the ability to fulfill the TRQ or fill it up completely. So we've reached out to the U.S. government to raise this issue, uh, and I believe it is being raised at the highest levels in terms of conversations that uh, the U.S. Trade Representative's Office is having with their counterparts in Canada, and the hope is that it actually gets implemented properly. The second win, if you will, uh, from USMCA with reference to Canada was the elimination of Class 6 and Class 7 pricing systems for powder, which allowed the Canadians to essentially export a problem outside of their supply management system that created havoc with powder prices worldwide and was certainly detrimental to our producers in the U.S. as well as our processors. They have six months, Canadians have six months to implement this this change. 
Uh, and the hope is that uh, they do it in the way that the agreement, both the spirit and the letter of the agreement are set up so that we actually do get a fairer shake and we do get a situation where Canada cannot export by undercutting world prices on powder, which caused for a number of years, caused some, some real concern. So we're just gonna have to see on the Canadian side, on the Mexican side, uh, the win, win for US agriculture and the win for US dairy is that we maintain our ability to access that market without the necessity of having tariffs and other barriers. Uh, we also had a side letter reached with the Mexicans that basically laid out a series of cheese names that the Mexicans now uh, indicate and, and believe are common cheese names and cannot be subject to a geographic indication, which would potentially restrict our ability to sell cheese, certain types of cheeses in uh, Mexico. So we're going to have to see the impact of that agreement as we now are in a world based on the virus and based on a Mexican economy that has weakened significantly. So it's not surprising that we've seen exports uh, to Mexico down a bit this year. Uh, the hope is that their economy rebounds and that we uh, continue to maintain that very important market for us. You know, you mentioned that exports to Mexico are down a little bit this year. They were actually down a little bit in 2019 after a really strong year in 2018. Was that some to do with the uh, USMCA negotiations or kind of a strained relationship because of the retaliatory tariffs from the steel and aluminum tariffs overall? I mean, do you expect to see this USMCA implementation kind of, again, restore a, a really good trading relationship when it comes to dairy to Mexico? Well, it is historically our number one market. And I think the reason why we saw a downturn in 2019 and 2020 is more about the economy of Mexico. Uh, that is an economy that has been very dependent on oil. And when the Russians and the Saudis got into a spat, which resulted in the lowering of, of oil prices uh, by the Saudis uh, and the increasing in production by the Saudis, that drove oil prices down uh, tremendously to, to a very, very significant low which impacted and affected directly the Mexican economy. That, that in turn impacts and affects, you know, how many people are employed and how, how people feel comfortable in terms of going to restaurants and how often they travel and, and what they buy at grocery stores. And so it's not surprising that when you see a declining economy, you see declining exports. Um, I think our, our relationship with the Mexican industry and the Mexican consumers is still quite good. Uh, it is still a very important market for us. Uh, it now has competition. In terms of our number one market on the powder side, and that's uh, Southeast Asia, we've seen a significant rebound and uh, remarkable growth in Southeast Asia in terms of, of uh, uh, ingredient sales. So, the, and that's important. I mean, with uh, the U.S. industry, the U.S. dairy industry is diversified. It's made a commitment to exports, uh, and it's good that it has because it allows us to have a better risk management, if you will, uh, if one key market is being impacted negatively by low oil prices, then maybe we have an opportunity to make uh, make up the difference in another emerging market uh, like Southeast Asia. You know, you mentioned Southeast Asia and, and now with USMCA complete, uh, what other future trade deals should we be looking at that could result in those increased exports for the dairy industry? You talked about the importance of diversification from who your trading markets are and making sure that, uh, I guess in this, it's not all eggs in one basket, but maybe all your cheese is not in one basket and, and heading to one market location. But where could we see some other potential uh, vibrant markets moving forward? I'd break it down in a couple different ways. Uh, one way is for us to continue the discussions and negotiations of trade agreements that recently or, or trade understandings that recently have been uh, agreed upon with the notion that there would be additional negotiations. So I'm thinking of Japan, for example, another important market 
for us, uh, the phase one trade agreement with Japan uh, essentially allowed us to be competitive once more with our New Zealand and our European counterparts and competitors in that market. But we would like to see phase two uh, that would allow potentially lower tariffs and a, a competitive advantage in that market. Uh, obviously, the phase one China agreement uh, is important, but it's only important if China lives up to its responsibilities under that agreement. So far, they've done a pretty good job of the non-tariff related, uh, non-sales uh, related promises. They've, they've done a lot to, to make dairy more available, U.S. dairy more available in that market, but they still have not purchased the level of agricultural products generally or dairy. Uh, that would allow them to meet the requirements under phase one of nearly $40 billion of, of ag sales. Uh, so that the jury is still out on that agreement. As far as new agreements are concerned, I think there are probably a couple of opportunities. One, the administration has started discussions in Kenya. Now that's not a big uh, market for us today, but it is an entry point, if you will, to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, a continent that will see uh, remarkable population growth over the next 10 to 15 years, hopefully emerging economies that become more stable uh, and governments that become more stable and middle classes get created in those circumstances and those middle classes demand more protein, dairy protein being a, a good source, a good nutritious source uh, to, to meet their needs. So, so that's one opportunity. The other opportunity, which is probably more current and more significant is the discussions that we're currently having with the United Kingdom. Clearly, this is an, uh, an importer of dairy products, and particularly cheese, uh, that rivals uh, just about everybody but Japan uh, globally, a uh, significant market. They import a substantial amount of product from the EU as they sever their relationship with the EU. Will there be an opportunity for the U.S. to pick up uh, some market share that so far has, has been difficult to access? It depends on the negotiations uh, that take place. Uh, those negotiations are taking place at the same time that, that uh, Brexit is the Brexit discussions and negotiations are taking place at the same time they're trying to figure out uh, the UK-EU relationship, and it will be interesting to see if we get an agreement with the UK and whether or not it provides uh, more market access, greater opportunity, or whether we're still constrained as we have been with uh, with some of the requirements the EU has, has put on, on us that has created a, a very difficult market for us to penetrate. Obviously, as we've come out of a, a very tough spring with uh, COVID-induced supply chain shifts, uh, the dairy industry was impacted severely by some of those changes and shifts. What are some of the uh, what role did the dairy exports play? We have we have seen dairy exports kind of maintain at least. Uh, how did you see exports uh, impacting how quickly the industry was able to kind of keep its head above water, at least uh, in this COVID pandemic period here? I think it is surprising that dairy exports have had sustained a number of months of, of growth in exports. We had our May uh, export numbers were the best we've ever had in that month. We sold a substantial amount of product. Our, our reporting process is a couple months behind, so it reflects what activity during the month of April. Uh, but but the report was a very positive one, um, showing increased exports, uh, showing us selling more product than last year, selling higher value product than last year, uh, and rivaling a very good year in 2018 that set records. Uh, that was surprising. Uh, I think it continues to be surprising. But but I think it's a reflection of a couple of things. One. I think that there were some countries in some areas of the world that have dealt with COVID better than we have, uh, and they have rebounded more quickly. Uh, so their food service wasn't uh, as disrupted as our food service industry has been. 
kids are going back to school, so milk is being consumed, and so there's a demand for additional ingredients. People are, are going out. Their economies are working better. The unemployment is not as severe. And so in those markets, particularly in Southeast Asia and some of the other North, Northern Asian countries, uh, we, we saw a pickup. We've also seen a pickup in, in China, in part because of the Phase 1 agreement and in part because they are rebuilding uh, their hog industry that, that uh, needs a substantial amount of product, whey protein product from us. Uh, they have recently extended whey protein uh, to not only feed, animal feed, but also into human food, uh, which created a new opportunity for us as well. I think it's a, a reflection of how other parts of the world have dealt with COVID more successfully than we have. Secondly, I think that uh, our uh, industry is pretty nimble. They are able to, and, and have been working hard over the course of the last couple of years to develop relationships, deepening our presence in these markets by having more people, by doing more marketing, by doing more promotions, having more partnerships, developing new products, uh, all of which I think uh, play to the strength uh, of U.S. dairy, uh, the flexibility and the functionality of our products. Our team has been pretty uh, pretty nimble itself. It's it's converted from doing a lot of in-person meetings and in a lot of in-person marketing to using uh, virtual technology, um, the, the virtual meetings and, and uh, virtual trade shows and uh, virtual presentations, getting information out about our cheeses, getting information out about our ingredients, getting information about how uh, ingredients can be used in, in new products, uh, beverages and gels and bars and, and nutrition products. Uh, so it's been a combination of things which has allowed us to maintain exports, which is a good thing because obviously there was a significant disruption on the supply side in, in, in America uh, because food service was shut down and kids no longer were going to school and weren't drinking the daily milk that they were provided at school. Switching gears a little bit, I know the industry, the dairy industry, has set some new sustainability goals for 2050. Uh, just this week, I believe you guys announced that. Uh, maybe outline those goals for us and the impact you see this having on the industry. I know that you and I have talked in the past about the role that uh, agri the agricultural industry can play in improving the environment. So kind of outline those, those goals that you have now laid out for the dairy industry. Well, I think the, the industry understands and appreciates that consumers, both in the U.S. and globally, are very interested in knowing where their food comes from, how it's being produced, and whether or not it is contributing to greenhouse gases or whether it is mitigating the consequences of, of climate change. The industry recognizes the importance of that to market, and so they are responding uh, aggressively uh, in an effort to try to uh, underscore the fact that this is an industry that has, in fact, reduced its greenhouse gas emissions over the last 10 years. It set a goal in 2009 to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions by 20% by 2020. They are well on their way to meeting that goal by the end of this year. We're the only uh, dairy producers, uh, along with our Canadian counterparts, that have actually reduced greenhouse gas emissions coming from dairy operations. Globally, that's not been the case, but here in, the nor in North America, it has been the case. Uh, they're an industry that also understands the importance of preserving water resources and maintaining soil health. And so there's a commitment to uh, to reduce uh, uh, the inputs uh, to be more efficient in the way in which we produce the milk. Uh, we certainly have been more efficient over the course of time and incredibly more productive, using a lot less land, a lot less water, a lot less, input, a lot less inputs to produce more milk. Uh, we need to continue to do that. We need to look for ways in which we can create feed supplements, for example, that reduce methane. We need to figure out ways in which we can capture that methane and convert it. Uh, into uh, into power and energy and fuel. Uh, we need to 
uh, sort of fractionate the manure and take various components of the manure uh, that can be utilized in, in a variety of different ways to create new products. And so the industry is committed to doing this over the course of the next uh, several decades to try to provide leadership for U.S. agriculture and also to provide leadership globally for the dairy industry. And I think once we sort of set our mind on something, it's, it's, we usually achieve it. And I would imagine that we'll achieve it probably sooner than people realize. A lot of new technology uh, being developed and trying to figure out a way in which every dairy operator, every, every dairy farmer in the country, regardless of size, can contribute to this. There are certain land conservation practices that, that people can utilize in, in, in terms of how the feed is developed. There are certain uh, large-scale equipment costs uh, that larger dairy operations can uh, essentially uh, invest in. And the combination of all of these steps by small, medium, and large-sized dairy operations could result in a day when it's an industry can say to the world that we essentially do not contribute emissions uh, from the production of, of milk and dairy products, uh, that we are actually helping to offset other industries' emissions. Uh, and that would obviously be a very positive day. And I think it would provide us a, a marketing opportunity and advantage, not just in the U.S., but uh, around the world. Talked in the past about the role of the public and private sector and kind of encouraging those actions and reducing emissions. Uh, there has been an increased discussion here in the last couple of years and, and even the last couple of months, we've seen some proposal legislatively to help bring USDA in um, and, and help reward farmers for their carbon mitigation efforts. What are your thoughts on that, um, especially because of your, your role that you played at the USDA for, for eight years? Um, is there an opportunity there to to partner together with the government and, and private as well as farmers to kind of further advance those efforts in helping uh, reward farmers for their actions to become a carbon sink in the environment and, and not and not just um, contributing to increased emissions for the role that agriculture well, plays. I would say this. Number one, it needs to be a partnership and that partnership needs to involve the government uh, in terms of farm policy, uh, in terms of how we compensate, how we support, how we provide financial incentives uh, for farmers to be able to embrace new land conservation practices or to expand existing land conservation practices that result in sequestering and storing of carbon. It is also, I think, important on, on the government to, uh, incumbent on the government to invest in research and development that can provide additional ways in which our footprint, our carbon footprint in producing dairy products can be reduced. Uh, so I think government plays a very important and significant role. And I think the next farm bill, a lot of debate and conversation will probably center around uh, that. I think there are tax issues, tax policy issues that could be very helpful. As you look at ways in which new technology can be brought online, the cost of that technology is pretty significant. Can the government provide uh, tax credits and investment tax credits as they have with other industries to spawn wider uh, utilization of, of this new technology that can separate manure, uh, the solids and the liquids, can reclaim the solids, can pelletize it, create a new product uh, that doesn't exist. So government has a role, I think, but it's not just government and it's not just the farmer. I think the uh, the private sector uh, customers, if you will, the people who are purchasing product, the people who are selling product, retailing product, I think they need uh, to step up and they need to provide additional support. Uh, a number of these large uh, retailers have foundations and so forth. Uh, there is an opportunity them for, for them uh, from a marketing perspective and from a, a sort of a, a social responsibility perspective to uh, create uh, additional resources and incentives 
and encourage this. And I think the foundation world uh, that speaks a lot and talks a lot about climate change and the importance of it and the, and the challenges, uh, I think it needs to continue to invest and expand its investment uh, in industries like the dairy industry that are primed and ready uh, to do their part and to provide leadership, not just here domestically, but globally. So I think it's it's a combination uh, of all of those. And you can learn more about the dairy industry's commitment to st- sustainability in upcoming issues of Feedstuffs, along with Jackie Fatka's coverage of trade agreements like USMCA. You can also receive daily updates on issues of importance to animal agriculture in general by subscribing to the Feedstuffs Daily e-newsletter. Thanks to Jackie and to former U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack with the U.S. Dairy Export Council for today's deep dive into trade issues and exports. And thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Balkim Animal Nutrition and Health. Join Balkim for their Real Science Lecture Series, a weekly webinar series featuring ruminant nutrition experts discussing vital topics for today's dairy industry. You can learn more at balkimanh.com slash realscience. I'm Andy Vance, and you've been listening to Feedstuffs In Focus. If you want to hear more conversations about some of the big issues affecting the livestock, poultry, grain, and feed industries, subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Google. Until next time, have a great day, and thanks for listening.